0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are glad to welcome you here today to this briefing entitled Investing in US Infrastructure for Maximum Dividends. We are holding this briefing in conjunction with our partners, the, NASIO, or the National Association of State Energy Officials, or NASEO. Because we are working together to take a look at America's infrastructure, its needs, the business case for investing in long-term reliability and sustainability. And what does this mean for us as a nation? What does this mean for our local governments, for our states? Because as we all are acutely aware, infrastructure in its many, many forms is what keeps this country and our economy running. Also want to let you know that this briefing is the first in a series on building resilient and secure infrastructure. Other briefings that EESI is working on with NASIO will examine state and city local government initiatives. We'll be looking at building materials and methods, how we can do a better job in terms of that built infrastructure. We're looking at the role of national labs Their important R&D work and the whole role of federal R&D and its role with regard to uh, looking at infrastructure across the country. We'll also be taking a look at coastal resilience as well as national uh, energy and climate security. So stay tuned for all of those, and also make sure that you participate in our briefing on Monday, there are flyers outside. With regard to that briefing, where we are bringing in state energy officials to look at the whole issue of state energy emergency preparedness. So again, I am happy to welcome you to this briefing today to kick off our whole look at infrastructure we have a terrific panel that you're going to be hearing from. And the, the impetus for this particular briefing is that there is, every four years, an important scorecard that is released that you're going to be hearing about from our first speaker. The uh, American Society for Civil Engineers does a report card on America's infrastructure that really takes the pulse, looks at what is going on again in all of these important different pieces of our infrastructure. One of the things that I also find quite remarkable is that there are so many different pieces, so many different systems in terms of thinking about infrastructure in this country. And that each is important to the other and they're all terribly important in terms of our economy, in terms of how we function, how we protect ourselves, uh, our our cities, our states, um, all of the things that make this country go. So our first speaker to talk about this important scorecard and what it can mean, because the purpose behind this briefing too is in terms of looking not only what we know about the needs that are involved in looking at infrastructure, but also, how do we go about making sound investments that are really going to maximize those dividends, those return on investments? So, we're first going to hear from Tom Smith, who is Executive Director of the American Society of Civil Engineers. He has long been uh, a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers. He's been there for over 25 years, where he has been. Uh, So important in terms of providing leadership, direction and management and oversight across a broad spectrum of ASCE's programs. He has also, his leadership has been recognized in terms of awards that he has won for his work. He has been a member, he's currently serving as a member of the Board of Directors of the National Institute for Engineering Ethics, a very, very important role, and he has played important leadership positions in a number of other organizations. And it's important too to note that he, while he is dealing with all of these issues on a national infrastructure basis, he is also serving on the Fairfax County Board of Zoning Appeals, which also gets right back into very local infrastructure
1: question, Tom? Thank you, Carol. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, and thanks for the invitation to be here with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, i tell you a little bit about our report card for America's infrastructure. Uh, this is Carol Brown with my name, is Smith. I'm a couple of people in the room. I'm looking at John Kassana, who's the director on the ASCE's board. Uh, who's here in, in the DC metropolitan area, as well as Phil Kelly. He's also been an active committee member with our sustainability committee. and uh, uh, education committee. Uh, and back in the back of the room, Brian Palish and Carolyn Sofman, who did a lot of work on this report card. Brian's the managing director in our D.C. office. Carolyn is, uh, is a director in the D.C. office. Very instrumental in making this report card uh, come to fruition and have been for many, many uh, years in Brian's case. Uh, ASCE is a uh, nonprofit, 501 501c3. We were created back in 1852. We have about 152,000 members in 177 countries. We, uh, our, our objective is to advance the science and profession of engineering for the welfare of humanity. So that's what we do. We're primarily focused on technical issues. We publish uh, 35 different technical journals, peer-reviewed journals. We publish standards, uh, a lot of books, 50 books a year, uh, all mainly technical and professional issues to advance engineering, and specifically in our case, civil engineering. About 20 years ago, in, in 1998, we, decided, we, we issued our first report card on America's infrastructure. We felt like there's an obligation as the stewards of infrastructure, as the folks who are designing it, operating it, maintaining it, uh, and inspecting it. We felt there was an obligation for engineers, civil engineers, to evaluate our infrastructure and make sure that the public and policymakers knew what the state of our infrastructure was. So we have a very robust process that we go through. We have over 30 different experts that evaluate 16 categories of infrastructure. Uh, And we issue that report card every four years. So just uh, in March we issued the 2017 report card which I'll talk about, Uh, before that it was 2013. We look at eight different criteria. We look at capacity, condition, funding, future need, operation and maintenance, public safety, resiliency, and innovation. Uh, So those are uh, the criteria that we utilize when we're evaluating infrastructure and we look at an enormous amount of data, a lot of it publicly available from uh, government entities we put about 30 people together. They evaluate and they go over this data. They look at it very objectively. Uh, and they give, uh, they call it balls and strikes. They, just, they, they figure out what they think is the most appropriate grade using a grading system of A through F that we're all familiar with. Uh, so we've been doing that since uh, 1998. Uh, unfortunately, uh, since we've been doing that, these, the, the cumulative grade has not gotten out of the Ds. Uh, so we are, we, we are not making the progress that we need to as a country. Uh, and we, we certainly have a lot of work to be done on a very critical issue for our public health, states and welfare. So these are the grades, these are the 2017 uh, infrastructure grades, you can see the 16 categories ranging from aviation and bridges all the way up to transit and wastewater. Um, unfortunately we saw uh, three of these categories actually did decline from the 2013 report card. Uh, so you can see a decline there in parks and recreation, solid waste and then transit Six of the categories remained unchanged, and then seven of the categories increased in their grades. So we saw slight increases in the grades for seven categories. Uh, You can see there hazardous waste, inland waterways, levees, ports, rail, schools, and wastewater. Where we saw an increase in the grades, we think that that was the result of strong leadership, thoughtful policy making, and investment that garnered results. So we did see uh, some increases when we had those three things happen. The highest grade you see there is rail. That's the only one in the B category. Uh, and B, by the way, is good. That means it's adequate for now. Obviously, we, ideally, we'd love to be exceptional. right? That means fit for the future. D is poor at risk. So that's, what we, that, those are the, that's how we define those different grades. C would be mediocre. Uh, the highest one, again, is rail. That's, right, that's risen to a B from a C+. Plus, so that's good. The private freight rail industry owns the majority of the nation's rail infrastructure. They've made significant investment in recent years, investing $27 billion in 2015 alone. So we really saw some results from private industry investment in the rail uh, uh, and freight rail area. Uh, I will say, on the other hand, that passenger rail uh, has some pretty significant challenges. Increasingly congested corridors, meeting safety technology demands, replacing hundred-year-old bridges, improving rail connections with other aspects of the freight network for a more efficient system. So anyone who's traveled on the Eastern Corridor, as I very frequently do uh, on passenger rail, probably know exactly what I'm talking about here. That there are some challenges ahead for us on the passenger side in particular. Uh, Transit received the lowest grade. That's a D minus. That's a drop from a D in 2013. And as we talk about sustainability issues and, and, and the importance of uh, you know, uh, climate change and the environment, certainly tra- moving people efficiently and effectively, certainly transit is a critical element of that. And so to have a grade as a D minus in transit should be unacceptable to all of us because that's part of the solution to the, some of the congestion problems that we see out here. And a lot of folks here in the room, I'm sure, can relate to that. I took a metro in this morning and everything went on time. Uh, two years ago, we had our fly-in And the entire metro was shut down that day when we were bringing all the civil engineers in here to talk about the importance of infrastructure. So it helped to drive a point, but not the way we wanted to drive (laughs) that point. So certainly, uh, Transit in America is hitting uh, hitting ridership records, 10.7 billion trips in 2014. Yet the symptoms of overdue maintenance and underinvestment have never been clear. Uh, Despite increasing demand, the nation's transit systems have been chronically underfunded. We've got uh, aging infrastructure and a $90 billion maintenance backlog. So this is an area that's certainly going to require more attention uh, from all of us. Investment gap. So we've identified the problem here. uh, And and as we talk a little bit about solutions, I'll I'll talk about what does it require to to fix the problem. You can see here, uh, in addition to grading our infrastructure, we've estimated the investment needed to maintain a state of good repair and earn a grade of a B. So remember those grading systems that uh, scores that I mentioned. Uh, B would be good or adequate for now. So in order to get there, uh, this is the investment gap. We currently have total needs of about $4.5 trillion between 2016 and 2025 over that 10 year period. Now, there's already existing funding, estimated funding, funding of $2.5 trillion. So that leaves a gap of $2 trillion over that 10-year period. Even though Congress and some states have recently made efforts to invest more in infrastructure, these efforts do not come anywhere close to what's needed. And we simply failed to invest for too long, and now we're really struggling to catch up. Failing to close the infrastructure gap uh, brings serious economic consequences. So one of the things we've looked at is what are the implications of failing to invest in our infrastructure if we fail to make these investments. Uh, We did an economic study called Failure to Act, and you can find that on our website, uh, infrastructurereportcard.org, has our report card as well as our uh, Failure to Act studies, where we had economists take a look at this. And uh, what is according to our latest economic study, which we prepared in 2016, if we don't address the infrastructure investment gap, 3.9 $3.9 trillion in U.S. GDP is lost by 2025. Businesses will lose $7 trillion by 2025. And $2.5 million jobs will be lost by 2025. So on top of that, each American family is losing about $3,400 a year, about $9 a day is what we show. And so what we call that is a hidden tax. So there's a lot of discussion about whether we should increase the gas tax and such, but we have to recognize that when we fail to invest in our infrastructure, there's a hidden tax that's being imposed on all of us. And we estimate it to be about $3,400 per family, per year, $9 a day. And how do you pay that? It's the time you spend sitting in traffic, repairs to your car, added costs for goods and services because we're not moving freight as efficiently and effectively as we can. So talk to the trucking industry about that the amount of time that they sit in congestion. We pay for that. All of us are paying for that. Every day, you know, that's the hidden tax that we continue to pay. If we invest in infrastructure, we can avoid that. And, you know, sometimes when we release these reports, people say, well, don't you have a conflict of interest? Aren't you invested in this as civil engineers? And I say, well, every one of us has a conflict of interest because every one of us is dependent on infrastructure. And we all have to pay for it. We all have to invest in it. And we all have to speak out on it, including civil engineers. And we feel like this is our obligation, since we're the experts in this topic. In fact, if civil engineers are not speaking out on this topic, I suspect everybody would say, well, where were the engineers who were supposed to be telling us about the problems with our infrastructure? Because we're the ones who are inspecting it and maintaining it, designing it, operating it. Uh, So it's very important, to I I think, that we really have to start listening to this, because this should be totally unacceptable to all of us. I talk a lot about how in the Olympics, it would be totally unacceptable to any of us if we are not the number one country in the world when it comes to gold medals and all medals. But our infrastructure is not even in the top ten, but from the World Federation of uh, uh, World Economic uh, 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 Forum. So we, you know, should never accept that. But somehow we become more complacent when it comes to infrastructure, and I think we have to change our way of thinking. This is a significant gap, but it is solvable. So how do we solve these problems? Number one, investment. Number two, leadership and planning. Uh, number three, uh, preparation for the future. Talk about both, each of these uh, uh, briefly here. Number one, investment. You can see the things that we think are important, uh, solutions for investment. Uh, increase long-term consistent investment. Uh, we think we need to increase investment from all levels of government and the private sector from 25 to 3.5% of US gross domestic product by 2025. We think that's critical if we're going to solve this problem. We have to begin with the following steps. Put the trust back into the trust fund. Uh, that means using dedicated public funding sources on local, state, and federal levels, consistently and sufficiently funded from user-generated fees with infrastructure funds, uh, trust funds never used to pay for or offset other parts of the budget. We, also, we always hear people talking about how we going to fund infrastructure. And I say the question should be how are we going to fund everything else? because this has got to be a priority for us. You can't run a business without having a phone system, an internet, and all this infrastructure over which you run it. The United States is the same way. You've got to have the infrastructure in place for it to operate in a global economy. Uh, so we think it's important. We've got to put the trust back into these trust funds. We've got to fix the highway trust fund. We say by raising the federal motor fuel tax. It's been 18.4 cents since 1993. It hasn't increased. I think it's the longest time we've gone without increasing it in its history. Uh, we, we, it, it, it doesn't do what it did back in 1993. The dollars you spend in 1993 don't go as far as they do today. You've got more energy-efficient cars as well. At some point, we we're also looking at things like vehicle miles travel and different ways of, of assessing that. But for right now, the most immediate... Near-term clear solution is increasing the federal gas tax. It really needs to be done. It's a bit of a no-brainer in many ways. You'll find uh, it's support from, from certainly from business. Look at the Chamber of Commerce, the trucking industry. Look at the AFL-CIO. Um, you're you're going to find it from big business and big labor. Um, So we we really have to address this problem. It provides jobs. It's uh, it's important for our global economy. And then authorize programs to improve specific categories of deficient infrastructure while also um, making sure that the true cost of using, maintaining, and improving all infrastructure is accounted for. Uh, Leadership and planning. We need leaders from all levels of government, business, labor. All investments need to be spent wisely. uh, we have an opportunity right now when we talk about that. Both candidates, remember in the, back in the fall, we are talking about infrastructure investment. It's a bipartisan issue. Uh, we get, we get sometimes uh, get crosswise on how do you actually fund it. Uh, but we, when we talk about how to fund it, it's all of the above. It's public-private partnerships. It's federal, state, and local uh, investment. All of the above. Um, so it's also important to require all projects greater than $5 million that receive federal funding using life cycle cost analysis. We focus too much on upfront costs. We need to look at the cost over the entire life cycle of infrastructure. That's critical. Uh, creating incentives for maintenance. Developing tools to prioritize projects. Streamlining the project permitting process. We've heard a lot about that. We've seen how to streamline. We've, we've streamlined the process. Remember when I-35 bridge collapsed, we got the built and permitted and everything else was done within a year. I-85, we saw that with the fire recently. Six weeks, they're gonna have that whole thing done. Um, You know, in the times of crisis, we know how to react. We have to be now proactive before there's a crisis. We cannot just continue to react to crises. We have to be more proactive. Um, Streamlining that process is important. And then uh, private sector investment and public-private partnerships. Certainly there's an opportunity with public-private partnerships. We think that's part of the solution. We don't think that's the only solution by any stretch but it is certainly part of the solution. We've done it very effectively in Virginia and other states, uh, so we should continue to look at that. And then also preparation for the future, uh, developing active community resiliency programs, emerging uh, technologies shifting social and economic trends, land use planning, supporting research and development, those are all critical. You're gonna hear from John Stanton talking about sustainability. That's a huge part of the solution. ASC was one of the three organizations that created the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure because we knew that sustainability is so important We can't just be relying on old infrastructure that our grandparents designed, built. We have actually got to look forward. There's all kinds of new technologies, uh, autonomous vehicles, things that we have to prepare for in the future. Uh, We've got to apply future thinking and not past thinking. So uh, there's a real opportunity here in preparing for the future with our infrastructure. It requires investment. It requires changing the way we think about infrastructure. And then finally, I'll mention uh, principles for infrastructure investment substantial long-term benefits, designing, building, operating, maintaining infrastructure uh, over the entire lifespan, sustainable, resiliency, state, local, private investment. All of those things are critical if we're going to be successful in tackling this problem. These are significant problems, but they, they, they truly are solvable. Uh, and it just requires a true uh, leadership. It requires a vision. It requires that to be bold and courageous and tackle these problems. Uh, Eisenhower did this back in the 1950s with the Interstate Highway System, put out a vision and (laughs) tackled the problem. It can be done, uh, but we have to prioritize this and recognize the severity of this problem for this country. Uh, Thanks for your time. I look forward to uh, talking further with you.
0: Great. Thank you Thank you, Tom, for that really uh, uh, very, very clear and sobering what we are dealing with in terms of infrastructure. But as you also heard from Tom, it really could be an exciting uh, step to take now to really um, embrace the kinds of changes and ideas that we are hearing about in different places and that you're going to hear more about today. So on that note, I want to now turn to our next speaker, to John Stanton, who is the CEO and President for the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure Johnson working in this whole area for many years and prior to joining the Institute he has uh, worked in the private sector <laughs> in uh, senior positions <coughs> where he was uh, with Tesla Solar City, also with the Solar Energy Industry Association and he also has been in the NGO community where he was with the Pew National Environmental Trust. But John has also served in government at both the federal and the state level. So we are eager to hear what you have to say, John.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Carol. Um, So obviously, as Tom just uh, indicated, we have a lot of investment in infrastructure. And um, ISI's angle on this is that we should make those investments more um, resilient, less energy intensive, and less resource intensive. Um, As Hurricane Sandy, um, Superstorm Sandy, demonstrated um, with tremendous might, our current infrastructure is antiquated, and it's not very climate resilient. Um, So. what I'm going to talk to you about is a little bit about ISI, what we're currently doing, and what we'd like to do in the future. Um, so the Institute is, um, has a mission to advance a project planning tool called Envision. Um, Envision is a rating system, but it's also um, described as kind of thought process engineering to help people planning, designing, and constructing infrastructure think about it differently in order to bring about more resilient outcomes. Um, As Tom indicated, we were formed by the American Public Works Association, the American Society of Civil Engineers, the American Council of Engineering Companies. And they were all working on simultaneous uh, similar projects to figure out a way to motivate more sustainable uh, project planning and design and construction. Um, At the same time, Harvard University was working on this. All of those efforts merged together, and the outcome was the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure. Um, So obviously, Tom's talked about the importance of infrastructure from a variety of um, viewpoints. Um, Bottom line is, it's very closely tied to our gross domestic product, to uh, state domestic product, individual, and family um, earnings. Um, and we have a lot of delayed investment. So since we're gonna hopefully make a concerted effort to catch up on that delayed investment, the question is how do we wanna build it and what should be some of the, uh, the, the key points that guide us in making those uh, investment decisions um, better. Um, so Envision applies to all civil infrastructure. Um, it applies to all phases and it is designed to constantly evolve and not be a static system. Um, we all have the benefit of seeing what the U.S. Green Building Council did with uh, the LEED standards, the efficient, uh, energy efficient design for buildings. Um, the distinction between LEED and Envision is LEED applies to any uh, building designed for human habitation, vertical infrastructure, Um, Envision applies to any building not designed for human habitation, power plants, sewage treatment plants, plus all horizontal (laughs) infrastructure. So whether it's highways, uh, transit systems, bridges, tunnels, um, that type of thing. Um, So the idea here was to complement LEED with a more comprehensive system that would apply to every type of infrastructure out there. Um, We have 60 credits in five categories. Basically, The the end product of this effort to create a rating system was the identification of about 60 key decision points involved in any infrastructure project, where if you have those 60 key decision points done in a more sustainable manner, then you have a cascading trickle-down effect, and it impacts all elements of the um, planning, design, construction, and operation and maintenance of the project. Um, And those are the 60 criteria that we use to evaluate the sustainable performance of infrastructure. Um, They (coughs) rotate around quality of life, leadership, resource allocation, natural world, climate risk, um, and the software usage manual is about 200 pages long. And so what we do is we train people on how to use it, we provide credentialing and exams, And then we verify projects um, and give them a rating. Um, There's five levels of achievement that one can assume um, or achieve. Um, If you merely apply existing law and regulations and you comply with all of them, um, that's called conventional design. What we're trying to encourage people to do is to obviously meet all existing laws and regulations, but then go beyond it. And the goal was to come up with a nomenclature, a common understanding of what a more sustainable outcome meant, and a way to uniformly measure it across uh, various sectors of infrastructure investment. Um, So it's pretty simple, five levels of achievement. Um, Typically, uh, what we find in the rating process is that superior and conserving are the most likely outcomes. now, this is just the genesis of, uh, of our timeline. Not tremendously interesting, um, but I would say that um, we now have about 6,000 Envision sustainability professionals, members of the engineering community, who have gotten trained on the tool. And more and more, we see the tool um, being used. For instance, uh, Skanska is one of the leading construction companies. They use it on every project uh, worldwide. Um, the LaGuardia Airport up in New York is being uh, rebuilt. Envision is the planning, um, construction, and design tool for that project. Um, the Good news is, it seems like sustainable planning and design is, is uh, becoming ever more popular, and, and that, that's the good news. Um, the projects that we rated are around the country. So today, what we do is we do a design assessment, um, and then we rate it. Um, this fall, hopefully as early as late summer, we're gonna be putting out for notice and comment a new version of the uh, design tool. Sorry about that. Um, and the, um, what the new design tool will have is a preliminary assessment and then a post-construction assessment. So what we want to be able to do is make sure that the, the project just wasn't planned and designed um, in keeping with sustainability principles, but as constructed, it actually um, <coughs> adhered to that planning and design framework and accomplished the objectives um, that were laid out by the engineers that designed the project. Um, and then the next phase of the um, tool development will be looking at design and construction and then design and deconstruction at the end of the project, life cycle of the project. Um, in addition to that, so that, that new version of the tool will be out in 2018. What we're also trying to do is currently, when you rate an individual project, you kind of have islands of sustainability. These are singular projects. Um, So, for instance, down in Florida, they just completed something called the I-4 corridor. It's a 22-mile road. That was an Envision project. Um, And we have tremendous success with individual projects. What we now want to do is take it to a wider portfolio level. So at the request of uh, New York and Los Angeles, so Los Angeles, both at the county city level and the L.A. Uh, Department of Public Works, they use Envision as their project management tool in every project. In New York City, the Department of Design and Construction and Environmental Protection uses on every project in, in, in the borough of Manhattan, um, or the borough of New York, I should say, the city of New York, all five boroughs. Um, so what they uh, are seeking is a portfolio-wide approach. So we get away from islands of sustainability, and we come up with a assessment tool that we would rate all of their infrastructure. So um, earlier, I had a slide that indicated that there's these varying performance levels of infrastructure. The idea would be that we would come up with an approach um, in both these cities, whereby if they designed every project to meet Certain minimum sustainability criteria, they would be entitled to a certain envision score. Um, and what this um, approach of evolving the tool from one-off projects to a suite of, of uh, portfolio assets or portfolio-wide, what it would allow for is um, a comparison of the um, projects across the city. Um, so, for instance, in the 2018 project cycle, you could be doing six or seven large infrastructure projects in New York. You'd be able to rate them to see how they compared against each other. Um, finally, in addition to the aggregated citywide performance data, what we'd be able to do is compare, let's say, a sustainable infrastructure investment in a sewage treatment plant in New York versus one in California or a highway in Florida versus a highway in Massachusetts. So the idea is to get beyond the single projects and then rate uh, the infrastructure on a portfolio basis, and then be able to make comparison and and contrast with respect to um, cost efficiency, construction timelines, and various different metrics which drive outcomes. Um, So at any rate, so that's it. it. Um, The bottom line is, we think that if we're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure, then we shouldn't just construct the project properly, we should construct the right project, which means from our perspective, um, a climate resilient asset, which can weather things like uh, Superstorm Sandy over the next 50 years, if if that's the uh, projected life cycle um, for the asset. So um, obviously, We have a lot of investing and a lot of uh, work to do, and from our perspective, it should be done so these are more resilient, less energy intensive, and more resource intelligent. So thank you.
0: Thanks so much, John. Um, We will now turn to our third panelist, who is Mariana Silva who is an associate for Infrastructure Planning and Finance with with Nathan Associates, um, Inc. And in her whole role as an infrastructure finance expert for the International Institute for Sustainable Development and the UN Economic Commission for for Europe, she has uh, provided technical advisory services with regard to looking at at uh, infrastructure procurement processes for governments throughout Asia, America, and Europe. And she has done a lot of work looking at a variety of financial approaches and has developed a lot of experience through this in terms of the role of public-private partnerships as a component of looking at ways to deal with sustainable infrastructure.
3: It is a pleasure to be here with you today. You didn't finish your slides. So, it's very clear now, based on the previous presentations, that there's a financing cost linked to the underinvestment of resilient infrastructure. And it's no surprise that those that cost is very high in the US. Due to the efficiency in their current water system, there's an estimate of 240 water main breaks per year, causing severe property damages. There's uh, the lack of resiliency and electricity greed causes, in average, between 18 to 28 um, power outage losses. And as Tom mentioned, there's actually a real problem in our mass transit system that causes an average individual like ops to spend 5.5 hours on traffic, which actually amounts to $100 million um, causing fuel and lost time. And finally, because of poor condition of roads and ports, U.S. businesses have to pay on average $27 dollars extra on freight cost. So no wonder the American society gives that degrade yeah. on our infrastructure. The reality is that these years of underinvestment really call us an emergency action think how we actually are preparing financing, procuring, and maintaining those infrastructure public assets. And as as a re- result of this deficiency, the current administration released an emergency act, emergency and national security projects, which is around one hundred and thirty seven billion dollars. And it covers a range of electricity, transport, um, water systems, oil and gas ports, a mix of everything. It's really the um, distribution in different states and under different investment all over the US. And there's a heated debate right now of whether the public sector should leverage private capital to, to finance this need. And the honest answer is yes. There's 137 billion just to finance all that need. It's not even enough to do a down payment. We have heard that it has a quantified the infrastructure gap around five trillion dollars. So two trillion are missing. One hundred twenty billion doesn't even give us a down payment for that. So instead of talking about whether we need it or not, we need to pass, pass, and we need to think of the how. How would we actually leverage private capital? That is not only about the financing, but about achieving those technology benefits, those efficiency gains, those innovation that brings the private sector to the actual operation of any public service. And for that, let's just think about any infrastructure asset. It's either financed through traditional public procurement or leveraging private sector. It could be through PPPs, it could be to leverage capital markets, as in the US is very common, used to be use- issuing use- use- municipal bonds. The reality is that every single infrastructure investment um, requires either user revenues or tax revenues for the operation, or both. <coughs> so this entire debate about infrastructure financing has concentrated on how do we finance the infrastructure construction phase, the CAPEX, but it should be more about how we actually maintain this asset about uh, during the entire life cycle, financing versus funding. And constructing an electricity um, generation company or a water treatment plant is not going to leverage, it's not going to yield a high value to society. It's actually the operation. Once a once project starts operating and delivering a service, that service being energy, transportation, education, water, or healthcare, it's actually during the lifetime of that project that it's going to deliver the highest um, value to society. So, in order to do that, we have to start preparing a very bankable pipeline of resilient infrastructure projects. And when I mean resilient, I mean resilient to changes in weather, climate change patterns, resilient to cybersecurity attacks, is reality, and resilient to government budgetary changes. The biggest infrastructure bottleneck that we're experiencing now is that most of the infrastructure projects are linked to spending um, tied to annual budgets. And it's because that asset, per se, has not a clear revenue stream that can service its operation. So that has to be trickled down under, under the entire development cycle. So the good news about all this is that sustainable infrastructure really allows for that thinking about how can the sustainable and energy and water efficiency gains represent clear higher revenue streams for the operation less electricity to pay, less water to consume, it actually trickles down to higher savings. If you are able to avoid any collateral damage because you actually prevent um, an impact on on an asset linked to climate change, that is actually a savings. The savings can be quantified, and it has been quantified. The challenge is that how we actually make the entire development purpose fit for purpose in a way that actually benefits the prioritization of Brazilian infrastructure. And for that, we need to think about the process that we have in, in place right now. We start with the planning and identification process. Are Actually, right now, are we thinking that we are procuring a road or planning a road or, or designing everything where the sea level, the rise level would be, for example, in Miami when we're constructing a road? Are we thinking about where all the changes in climate pattern will affect the infrastructure that we are planning right now? Are we prioritizing those projects that will actually leverage the higher yields to society? <clears throat> there, there's some cost-benefit analysis that has been done here, but are we actually factoring all these externalities? When we prepare projects, when we decide, is this a product procurement, is it a PPP? Are we actually considering all the benefits that the private sector can bring instead of just the finance? And more importantly, and here's where I actually have to st- stress the most, Are we preparing attractive projects for the finance industry? The capital is not the problem anymore. There's an enormous interest from Wall Street to actually finance this infrastructure gap. The problem is that there's not enough ready bankable projects out there to actually be capitalized. Finance, as I mentioned before, is not sentimental. It goes where the good deals are. So we have to think about that. And for that, let us just stop one moment and put us ourselves in the shoes of an investor. Either you're a private investor or creator or debt holder, what you care about is the return of investment or the use debt service coverage ratio. You don't really are going to be thinking about is that project low carbon, resilient, inclusive, energy efficiency, water resource efficiency. It has to be factored all these externalities into the parametric investment analysis that the finance industry does. So, just out of curiosity, who here works in finance or used to work in finance? So, if I approach you and I tell you there's a great opportunity about an energy, PPA in the state of Miami, you're not going to ask me, okay, how many people are you going to service? How much (laughs) are you going to change lives? No. You're going to ask me, okay, what is the net present value of the investment? What is the IRR? And automatically, it leads into a very systematic procedure way that the finance industry evaluates projects. What is the discount rate that you're going to use linked to the risk linked to that state? Um, Ultimately, will that project add value to my portfolio? I have a fiduciary duty towards my investors to create value in monetary terms. So is that project going to benefit me with that? So the problem and the real conundrum about pushing the resilient infrastructure agenda is that there's, there's a mismatch between capacitive interest between policymakers and financiers. We want to leverage private capital to solve this infrastructure gap, but are we actually preparing bankable projects bankable on their financiers' perspective? And the answer is not yet, not yet. So the last um, stage about infrastructure lifecycle that I really want to stress is important right now is the construction and monitoring. Why is this important? The more projects we actually have solid track records of resiliency that have achieved um, savings linked to energy efficiency, linked to avoided cost to a catastrophe, etc., the more we can actually create benchmarks and the more we can use this flagship as say this works, then the easier will be to convince everyone that this is the way forward. So um, just as a, as a last thing, there are a lot of financial instruments out there. A lot of green bonds, social impact bonds, blue bonds, blended finance, green asset-backed securities. They have work, and they're working all over the world. But the ultimate message that I want to give you is that if the project doesn't hold on its own, you can do as much variability ability to get funds, as much as structure, finance, and innovation, it won't work. It really has to be planned and sustainably and bankable since the beginning. And The way, the the governments that are actually leading this space are thinking about green finance at the same time that they're thinking about the procurement process and their policy and regulation. Because, take the example of the Netherlands, they want to convert the entire country using smart grids, meaning that grids that they just bounce back immediately after a power outage, because they see that they've done enormous savings to get up there. They just went there and say, okay, we're going to start procuring smart grids in the next five years, so you, private sector, if you don't have the technology yet, you have the time to invest and etc., I'm going to give you a little bit of support financial for your technology research, and then now they're procuring it, and it works. You just need to give the time to the private sector to adjust to where the government is thinking about in the future. Same can be applied for every single technology need that we need to, uh, to make our infrastructure more resilient. And of course, policy and regulation, if you have uh, tax breaks for renewable energy or energy resiliency, of course, that helps. So when we start thinking about these three areas and start to trickle down into our project development cycle is when we're going to have resilient cities all over the U.S. So I do want to finish with a good example so I don't leave you in a gloomy scenario. One thing that we're doing very good here in the U.S. is the property-assessed clean energy peace financing, which really puts these three, three sectors that I just mentioned into practice and walks the talk. What it's using is uh, innovation. They're issuing bonds to city or local governments to capitalize itself and using that capital to pay upfront money for property owners, for renewable energy or energy efficiency or energy resilience. And the innovation here is that the property owner doesn't have to pay back as a traditional loan. The way that it works is that thanks to that retrofit, the value of the property increases, so they have to pay more tax. I mean, it's only fair. they got a, a retrofit. But the thing is that even though they have to pay more tax, it's less than the actual benefits and savings that they're getting to be energy efficient. So it's a win-win situation for the environment. Um, that's just the countries where Nathan and we are advising all of this issue that I mentioned, and we will be very happy to help any of you that do, if you have any questions. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Mariana. Um, we are now going to turn to Jeremy Marcus, um, who is the Deputy Chief of Staff and the Legislative Director for Congressman Matt Hartwright, who is a Democrat member from Pennsylvania. And it's important that Jeremy speak briefly to you because this is an example of, again, um, a policymaker uh, who is uh, uh, introducing, once again, legislation, reintroducing it in this Congress uh, called the PREPARE Act. And Jeremy will talk about that, but it's, a, a, it's an opportunity recognizing the need for federal, state, local governments to do more to coordinate, to collaborate in terms of planning, um, that gets us to greater sustainability and uh, really reducing risk and and um, better emergency uh, planning given all of the kind of extreme events that we have been uh, having. Jeremy?
4: Thank you very much. Um, so I want to talk about something that hopefully you all can do as a takeaway and an action um, coming out of this. Those on the Hill, um, we'd love to have your support as a co-sponsor. And those from outside organizations, um, we'd love you to join the almost six organizations that have already endorsed the PREPARE Act. So um, the, I think most of you probably know about the uh, high-risk report. GAO comes out once a Congress, the high-risk report, I'm looking at where are the fiscal exposure the federal government faces, where what things could go wrong that would cost the government a lot? And where are we not adequately thinking through these problems? So for the first time in 2013, the GAO put um, preparedness for extreme weather events on their high-risk report. And it's been on the report ever since. Um, actually, the good news is there has been some improvements in this area, but we're not nearly there yet. So working with the GAO after the high-risk report, um, my boss, and now along with the lead of Congressman Leonard Lance, put together the PREPARE Act. The Repair Act does re- three really simple things. The first thing it does uh, is build off of what is now um, put together in 2014 is an interagency council looking at how the government is preparing for extreme weather events. Um, the council comprises many different agencies, um, but what this bill would do is A, it would codify that interagency council, and B, it would give it a little bit, a little more power and elevated stature because we think that it's really important that this federal government is looking Um, government-wide about how we're responding to extreme weather events. The second thing it would do is make sure the individual agencies are adequately preparing to respond to events based on their own individual missions. Now, it's currently required that these agencies put out plans to adapt to extreme weather events. I'll say some agencies are doing a really good job, putting a lot of thought into this, preparing really thorough reports. Some agencies are really not paying attention to this. Maybe agencies that don't see this as core to their mission, but they're missing the big picture that extreme weather events are going to impact every agency. And producing a one or two page paper that kind of regurgitates the same thing every year is not going to cut it. So what this bill would do is codify these reports and make them accountable both to the Interagency Council and to Congress so we can do something if agencies aren't thinking through these problems. The third bucket of the Act is looking at state and regional actors. We talked to a lot of mayors, a lot of people on the ground that said that, There were a lot of resources, there were a lot of agencies that had field offices, they weren't talking to each other, they weren't listening, they weren't taking lessons learned and integrating them back to other parts of the country, and then what we needed is more regional coordination. What the Prepare Act does is comes up, make sure we have regional coordination plans amongst all the federal assets that are in communities, and make sure best practices are brought up and shared amongst different regions. So this bill is three simple things. It's no cost. It's not plugging the $2 trillion deficit, but it's going to do, make a real difference in actually making sure the government's ready for these disasters. Now we have, as I mentioned, almost 60 organizations supporting this. We have some nonprofits that work on this issue, but we also have a lot of private sector folks. And in talking to these groups that helped us develop this text, these are things that they're doing in their business practice day to day. They are frustrated and confused why the government cannot take the simple action they're doing about looking forward, not just looking historically, about what is coming down the pipe. Um, everyone from the Reinsurance Association of America to the Camp Association are all supporting this bill. Um, the uh, National Taxpayers Union last Congress had a number two on their list of the 10 no-brainers for Congress. So um, we really want to make a big push this year um, to advance this. It's bipartisan. Um, And again, it's no cost. So uh, we have some fact sheets here, but we'd love it. If you're from a Hill office and you're a Boston co-sponsor, we'd love to have them on. Um, And if you're from an outside organization and want to work with us on this bill and help them make it a reality, um, that would be great, too. We're planning on introducing it in the next few months. So uh, thank you very much.
0: Um, Thanks so much, Jeremy, because it really is Another piece of a very important response to all of the things that we've been hearing about from our panel today. So, let's open it up for your questions and comments. And if you could identify yourself,
5: please. Okay. Sure. Hi. I have a question for anyone on the panel. Uh, it might be more specific to Tom. Maybe he have some idea of how he would finance this. I know you may have addressed that. And you did mention the Eisenhower administration and tremendous progress that was made during his... Uh, this era, but what was the motivation at that time? Did it have anything to do with coming out of World War II? And so, was there more unity behind it? And would it take another war in order for us to, take another right. to in order to uh, to foster uh, motivation to uh, put the resources behind us?
1: Yeah, um, you know, with, with Eisenhower, I know, um, I think the, the military preparedness had a big part, you know, making sure that we had a preparedness of the country uh, following World War II. Um, but also you know, obviously it had an impact on our, our, our economy. And looking at the different ways of funding it, I know that they looked at that time at, at tolls versus the, the gas tax. And they, they utilized the gas tax for a significant portion of that. Um, so I, mean, I guess I've always said, when, when it comes to infrastructure, all of the people who use it are gonna to have to pay for it. All of us are gonna to have to pay for it one way or the other. Uh, whether it's taxes, tolls, you know, there's a lot of different uh, possibilities. And as I mentioned earlier, though, as far as we believe that it's going to require federal, state, and local government investment and private industry. Uh, so we really think it's all of the above when it comes to those options. And the gas tax that hasn't been increased since 1993, and it's lost, you know, a very significant percentage of its buying power since then. Um, it, it seems like a clear solution to do that to increase, and ASC recommends it. In fact, I think our policy recommended a 25 cent increase in the gas tax. I suspect most folks don't have any idea what their tax is right now on, on, on gas. Um, but it is something that uh, I think is important we, you know, we, if we're going to continue to maintain the infrastructure that we have. And again, we also, as I said, it's not just maintaining it the way we used to do it. It's maintaining it for the future. Uh, with more innovative, uh, sustainable, resilient uh, technologies.
5: don't have something to yeah. okay. <coughs> okay. Go ahead. Mother <clears throat> with RPE. question for Tom: I saw on your slide you had research and development and new materials and processes. Can you give some examples of the kinds of things that you feel would be uh, resilient and, and less energy-intensive?
1: The question about research and development, and and of course, uh, there's a significant need for investment in research. Uh, And I think the federal government has an important role to play there through NIST and NSF and and, uh, EPA, um, Department of Energy, a lot of different research programs. Um, This morning, I was looking on our Collaborate Forum uh, at at the discussions taking place, and they were talking about. Piezoelectric transducers um, to provide energy, looking you know, in, in, in roadways using uh, sort of mechanized energy, such that uh, in there where you have trucks that have a bigger impact on uh, maintenance, actually would provide more energy. Uh, so there's there's just a lot of different sustainability solutions, uh, non-corrosive materials, embedded sensors in in, in bridges so things that think were utilized after I I-35 uh, collapsed. Um, so but these you know, with with 50 60 seventy five hundred year old uh, infrastructure you don't have any of that um, and, and, and so I think this investment in research is critical the private sector is doing a lot of it obviously but I think there's some there's a fair amount that the, that the federal government also needs to uh, facilitate and can Marianne? no I just wanted uh, I wanted to add something
0: that I don't think we mentioned any of
3: those but one of the biggest barriers that people see is like the extra cost of these new technologies might cost. But if you actually evaluate the asset across the entire life cycle, it's actually cheaper because there's a lot of efficiency gains. So there's there's something to be said about
0: that. And I think you made the point earlier, Tom, about how important it was to look at everything on a life cycle investment basis. And I think you're you're all saying that. And and one of the things that I often think about all are all of the comments that we hear about infrastructure in other countries that appears to be so much more robust, um, updated, you know, than what we are seeing here, and and how important that is. And I think Mariana, you've looked at a lot of those, and I would think, and please, please tell us in terms of kinds of best practices, technologies that have been developed with regard to a lot of those infrastructure projects, whether they are new bridges, buildings, airports, etc. And are those coming to the U.S.?
3: Absolutely, yes. I don't want to open another parenthesis, but what you're mentioning as well is an opportunity, but as well a risk. We're seeing as well in the energy sector that the high development of new technologies is causing like a little bit of noise of how you're going to finance these things. A lot of financiers jump into this new new era of clean clean technologies and they are, for example, this clean technology issue at one. They, our financiers financing this one, but then six months later there's a new technology and then you're stranded. So there's a lot of, as well, innovation on the financing side that needs to happen to help investors not to be scared about new technology developments that is developing very quickly. Um, I heard, I had, I heard this phrase um, from the head of banking, one from the head of the World Bank, saying that sustainability is the biggest transition that we're going to experience. It's as strong as the uh, industrial revolution,
0: but as fast as the digital one. So we have to face the challenges. So fasten your seatbelts,
5: right? <laughs> OK, let's go here first and then. I'm Jimmy Zumba from the Senate side. I have two questions, one for Mariana, and the other one for Jeremy. Uh, well, anyone can take as a matter of fact. But uh, in regards to, to budgeting, for example, the federal government generally don't budget for maintenance in the future for any project. Do you think it's time to, that we can start budgeting for maintenance? Uh, because that's the reason why we are so behind the infrastructure right now. And the question for Jeremy is, uh, the Senate, well, Congress in general, has been trying to form the infrastructure bank, and it has always, hasn't taken a leg in, in any way. So the thing is, it would be appropriate right now with uh, President Trump trying to uh, invest a trillion dollars in, in infrastructure. you think is, right now is a good time to... Start talking about the infrastructure bank
3: or not? So, the answer to the first question is about the maintenance issue. I think, and something that is not being done right now, since you're converting the idea into a project and doing the project preparation, you have to think about what your revenue stream from that asset is going to be. Not all projects um, lend themselves to actually charge revenue streams from the users, but it doesn't mean that someone at the end of the day will pay for it. Is it through availability payments coming from the government or user fees on et That has to be very clear to actually use determine that fee that is going to help you to maintain that asset. So it's not only about setting aside a budget every year with with no real target of how much that co- that is gonna cost. It's about pre feasibility analysis and financial analysis of that asset to actually do a proper planning.
2: Okay, okay, okay please. Oh, okay, so just
1: on the first point,
2: um, the the issue of operation and maintenance of existing infrastructure is underappreciated. Um, what I would say is the most resource intelligent, least energy efficient, um, most you know carbon smart, you know outcome is to operate and maintain existing infrastructure more intelligently. Um, and while everyone gets excited about the new infrastructure projects, and they are very exciting, and, and infrastructure does have to be replaced at the end of its <coughs> lifespan, um, I think that the problem with the federal budgeting, where they actually don't budget for operation and maintenance, really highlights one more aspect of this culture of chronic underinvestment
1: in infrastructure. I, was just, if I could just add on to that, the ANC uh, has been very focused on this very issue that you were referencing on, on uh, operation and maintenance and life cycle one of our three strategic initiatives we call a grand challenge which is reducing the life cycle cost of infrastructure and because we but looking at it differently not just these upfront costs as we've had a tendency to do for so long uh, and, and truly evaluating operation and maintenance costs uh, when you're looking at the life cycle so much of the cost of infrastructure is in the operation maintenance and we lose track of that and so we've you know in the sort in solutions that we propose there, we talk about requiring all projects greater than $5 million receiving federal funding using life cycle cost analysis because we think that that is so important and it really has to come with a vision at the top level. We've done some studies on that and you find that on this issue of life cycle cost analysis a lot of folks are doing it differently <coughs> uh, and, and in fact we're looking at should we have some even more clear guidelines or even a standard, something along those lines that really give some better guidance on that because we're, we're, we're not doing this as well as we need to and we should. We'll just talk about the infrastructure. And it's something that, um, on a personal note, and my boss is supportive, and I think it's great. I think it gives some additional tools and some flexibility
4: to um, finance some projects that might have fortune. More difficult than traditional systems. My only caution, and I do think it should be part of this infrastructure conversation we're having. My only caution about that is I think that oftentimes when people look at innovative infrastructure, innovative financing for infrastructure, they sometimes equate actual real federal dollars to the ability to leverage private dollars, and it's not a one for one. I mean, when, when you Provide some, you know, TIFIA, and you, know, you provide the ability to borrow. You know, you can't. It's not the same as directly funding these projects. So that money has to be paid back from somewhere. And I think a lot of times people use this in order to um, to claim that they've done more than they actually have. And I'm worried that when we talk about one trillion, you know, if a lot of that is just front-loading a lot of investment through financing that we don't have the plans to know how to pay back in the long term, then that's going to that's gonna have an empty long-term promise. So I think that the infrastructure bank should be fully a part of what we talked about, but we should just be honest about how much actual additional infrastructure investment that's going to bring versus the status quo and, and not exaggerate the impact. Um, just on that
2: point, I, I would just give you an example. Um, you know, There are There was a lot of uh, discussion about uh, underinvestment in new energy assets. Um, And Congress decided to pass an investment tax credit for renewable energy. The total cost according to the Committee on Joint Taxation was 1.1 billion. And over the next eight years, it leveraged about three and a half, four billion dollars annually in investments um, in new energy infrastructure. Um, so, there's a lot of different ways to induce investment. Uh, an infrastructure bank is one, but also smart use of tax credits and other mechanisms such as that through the tax committees can also <coughs> leverage a, a lot of really good investment. Okay,
0: okay
1: here first and then get your um, So, this is a question inspired by something Tom that you said. Um, one of the things you mentioned was uh, streamlining project permitting procedures. Um, I was wondering specifically on that, what sort of hurdles uh, do companies space and which one would you suggest going out Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm not sure where I would start. No, I, I mean it, this is a, this is a tricky thing because at the same time you don't want to lose the protections on on the environment, sustainability, uh, historical, you know, our heritage. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a balance I mean it is a complex issue and in fact I would throw a tort reform in there too um, it's one of the issues that <clears throat> uh, increases costs uh, and, and adds delays uh, it's not just the regulatory process uh, Frank, Frank and Frank we're going with the regulatory process in Fairfax I it's because <laughs> I'm involved with the D.C. they think I can move permits faster to get a new tenant in our building uh, and it's taking just weeks and weeks and weeks um, how do we change that uh, I, I'm not sure I can give you the answer. Than making sure that we, that we do it like we do when there's a crisis. Every time there's a crisis, we find a way to move it fast while also making sure we're protecting the environment. Uh, we become much more efficient and much more effective. So we've got to figure out ways to do that. Uh, again, don't want to make, We've got to make sure we're not uh, um, uh, um, putting the ingenuity, the environment. Uh, but I think there are significant ways of reducing uh, regulatory process time and also uh, court reform. Uh, civil engineers and you know, particular get dragged through, I can't tell you how many lawsuits where uh, there's anything that happens, you, know, you just bring anyone who had it, any fingerprint whatsoever with, with, with a project gets brought into that case. There's a lot of different things that can be done to streamline that. Uh, certificate of Merit program statutes, uh, like some states have utilized. Um, there's, 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 so there's different things that can be done there uh, which we think are part of the process.
0: Okay,
5: over here. There are... There have been discussion drafts circulated around this town for 500 projects. NGA, um, Trump transition team. They're in the works now. They're moving forward now. The infrastructure plan for Trump's administration is emerging now. So beyond the policy issues you've discussed, are any of the programs and projects that you discussed going to be in what's emerging as the 500 infrastructure programs that the Trump administration is going to advance? It's happening. So from the point of view of a demonstration project for some of the concepts you outlined today, are any of those in the 500 programs, or I should say, infrastructure projects that are being floated right now? Because they're out there. So rather than talking ethereal, can we talk practical? Talk to anyone. I mean, it, it's happening, so sure. are you guys it? So um, the target. target audience
2: for um, the Envision project planning tool is infrastructure owners. Typically infrastructure owners in this country are state and local government. Um, right federal government owns about 4% of the infrastructure, but it's fairly small outside of the military construction context. Um, and because it's state and local government that owns the infrastructure, they're the ones that decide on whether or not a project planning and design tool like is going to be used on the project. What I would say is, whether it's Kansas City, whether it's the New Jersey-New York Port Authority, the city of New York, the Uh, City of Los Angeles, County of Los Angeles, Um, the high-speed rail in California, CalTrans uses the Envision tool on all of its projects. So the short answer is if the funding goes to one of the infrastructure owners that currently sees value in methodically thinking through how you engineer more sustainable outcomes, then the answer would be yes. But it would be jurisdiction-specific.
5: So are,
2: so if you have one of those 500 projects in, let's say, the county of Los Angeles, then yes, it would be, um, you know, the
5: project would be managed
2: using the envision tool.
5: So are you hoping for the 500 projects so far that are being floated, that are going to be put in to what will become a Trump administration infrastructure program to be determined, are you collectively aware of projects that you're working on that are going to be included in that? Because well, that's going to get you the visibility and kind of move it beyond where you are now into your ability to say, yes, we are now part of...
2: Right. Like, what my short answer, and then we can that I to say, the Trump proposal, I don't think is going anywhere. It's- just too generous um, with respect to tax credits, and I'm a big fan of tax credits. Um, But what I think is realistic, given the the current um, complexion of the key committees, is from a sustainability standpoint, um, I think something modest is possible, like uh, Tiger Grants are typically about 10% of a federal infrastructure budget. So what you could say is, if you are seeking a merit-based investment decision through the Tiger Grants process and you use Envision or a similar sustainability tool, you score a little bit higher on your criteria for eligibility. Um, But my sense is, obviously, we would like to see something more aggressive than that, but that's something that you would like to think um, is possible (coughs) in the context of an infrastructure bill if it came together.
0: Tom or Jeremy, did you want to add to it? Okay. Okay. Question
1: over here. How much leverage do you think the federal money can produce? I mean, is, if the feds put in twenty percent, do the state and locals pick up the rest, or I mean, what is that percentage you guys have looked at? I can, I can tell you the percentage. I'm, I'm looking back in the back of the room because there be some input back there. Do we have anything on that, Brian, that actually looked at percentages for you know, investment? If you have a federal yeah. investment, what's the. You know. it, it would depend on the program. I mean, yeah. Historically, in surface transportation, I'll let the it. Yeah. It, it's been 45% of the capital program. Uh, but you have other areas, if you've got wastewater and drinking water, it's considerably less. It's yeah. going to depend on.
3: 16 category. Yeah, I was going to add exactly the same. It's it's project-based level. If it's only on energy, it's going to on leverage more private sector. Because it's very clear revenue the and profit out of it. If it's water, it's a little bit more social and private sector gets a little bit more care about any risk related to that. So in other countries, if it's energy, it can be... If you have a spectrum, it could be an asset that is fully
0: privatized, or managed by the country. It depends on the program. And I would just add that when you look at whether it's a transportation bill um, in in basically any you know that there are all sorts of programs that have different cost shares with regard to what the, the feds put in and what state and local agencies are required. Uh, to put in as their part of the match, and however it is that they get them. And one of the things that I think has been very interesting in terms of this last year or election cycle was in terms of how many ballot measures there were at the state uh, and local level with regard to infrastructure. And that people voted for them overwhelmingly and most of those went forward because people saw the need for infrastructure investments, and whatever those measures were, whether it was an increase in a particular uh, tax or, or uh, in terms of voting in, in bonds, it was dedicated to those kinds of projects. So people knew specifically what exactly that they were buying, and and people uh, supported it, uh, including uh, in, uh uh, a number of states increased their, their state gasoline taxes because the need for infrastructure investment was so acute in their state and local uh, jurisdictions.
1: Yeah, I'll mention on that, on Carol's uh I think there are over I say over 400 ballot measures in the 2016 election, and about 70% of those right. passed. Uh, and then in the last five years or so, we've got, I think, over uh, about half the states have increased their gas tax. So, um, and if you look at those states, I think it was about maybe 90% of the incumbents got re-elected. Uh, so, it, it, um, stage of recognizing they need to do this, they are, electing, and that's, that's certainly helping to make a difference. Um, and they're doing it without replications politically. So, um, you know, maybe at the federal level, um, there's a lesson to be learned there.
0: Any other questions or, okay, over here
5: just wondering, when you talk about... Um, Could you wait just a second for the mic? There you go. When you talk about infrastructure life cycle, do you consider um, like repurchasing or uh, multi-use types of infrastructure that under consideration? That's mm-hmm. yes,
1: in fact the evisorated tool <laughs> specifically talks about that. Um, yeah. So if,
2: um, take transportation as an example. Um, you, obviously, intermodal transportation and the notion of it has been around for a long time. Um, but but even if you look at Dallas Airport, where they're finally extending the Silver Line, and that's been probably in the works for 25 years, you know they're just now making that an intermodal facility where you can take a train to the plane. Um, and so you know, obviously, there should be a big premium put on that. Um, You know, highway construction is very popular, um, but I think there's a consensus view that you just can't build the roads bigger and bigger. It encourages more people to drive. Um, And that one of the best ways to relieve congestion is to provide alternatives to people um, through different types of intermodal transportation. So um, you would like to think that there's a big premium being placed on retrofitting existing assets to make them more intermodal in the transportation context. And Dallas Airport would be a good example
0: of that. And I think actually some of the ballot measures from last year are also good examples of that. So you might want to take a look at some of those. OK? I have a question, a clarification for Mariana Silva. And we spoke about
3: three areas of, say, influence on. Uh, need for resilience planning, and one is the weather-related uh, weather pattern changes that are climate-related, and second was uh, the cyber security issues, and then budgetary crisis. Could you elaborate just a little bit on those last two? Because I'm trying to understand. I mean, are we talking about just a threat to society in terms of the uh, the uh, cyber area in particular, or, or just a sort of a terror threat in general, or Uh, Also, are you talking about government budget crisis? Um, Absolutely. Uh, Very briefly, of course, you have climate change. The second one is cybersecurity that actually is a priority of the current administration as well. We were in conversation, for example, with the Department of Defense, who's starting to think about how some of their missions be powered by off-grid power plants, because in case there's any attack to the um, system, to the electricity grid, they can still operate. They want to make sure that whatever happens under any circumstance that they can still operate immediately, but they're, um, to that they're dealing into that. The last one is the U.S. doesn't really use me if I'm wrong, multi-year framework, meaning that the operation part of the asset is not budgeted, but as well, a lot of decisions on infrastructure are highly political and it it moves with political wins. Instead of just creating like a framework that whatever needs that they are in the country, the state, or whatever is needed, is gonna function independently of whoever is gonna be in administration. That's what I meant. I should have said I'm Kathy Broad with
0: USDA. Oh,
3: pleasure to meet you.
0: (laughs) Any last comments or questions? Okay, go ahead.
4: Um, So you talked about the balance between sustainability and, like, profitability. The question is where the economic benefits of something would outweigh the sustainability, like a harbor deepening, which could cause coastal resiliency uh, issues for the barrier islands. How do you, uh, like, pan out the cost of that so that the people on the islands don't have to pay for, say, something that might not really help them uh, that much in the long run, specific to, to those people, like, in their mind? But, so I guess my question is how would you uh, how would you spread out the costs and benefits of that to better represent
2: that? Um, I would just note that you know, if if your your port, because of the draft on the ships, is becoming outdated and it can no longer accommodate state of the art vessels, um, that port's gonna pretty quickly die. And so is the tax base. So um, you know, Obviously, there's always balancing um, with dredging activities and so on, but uh, you, know, you would like to think that there's a maintained or increased tax base that allows for additional collateral complementary investments in, let's say, barrier islands or something um, in order to safeguard them against any possible adverse consequences
1: associated with
5: expanding the tax base.
1: Can um, I just add, when we talk about the definition of sustainability, it's, you know, we, we, we try to, we say that uh, the three components, economic, uh, environmental, and social. So you're really looking at all three of those when you're evaluating a solution. So the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure is evaluating all three. So they're evaluating all those factors and they're figuring out whether a project really meets the, the uh, criteria uh, under a vision. Thank you.
0: Great, well, Thank you all for your uh, participation in today's briefing. I encourage you to continue to watch our uh, briefing series as it develops, and I hope that you will join us again on Monday uh, as we look at our next one, dealing with states and emergency energy emergency preparedness. And I'm going to say thank you very, very much to this wonderful panel. There were lots of questions that were raised that I think we should probably go back to as we look at how we try to move solutions forward. And we would welcome your input. If you have uh, suggestions for other issues that you think that would be great for us to look at, or questions that you would like us to pursue, please let us know. And please join me in thanking this wonderful panel.